Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. finally started building in Minecraft. Uh, I saw it. You took down the um, the facade just as a, the spacer. You mean the wireframe? Yeah, the wireframe is gone. Yeah. Come and join us on our Minecraft server today. And I just logged in uh, in the middle of nighttime, surrounded by zombies. So I am running around in circles as I try to avoid death. It's daytime for me. Are we on the same server? No, I just, I went to sleep, but not before a bunch of mobs spawned around me. Okay. Including a creeper. Run away. Run away. When I told someone today to listen to this, they said, I didn't know you played that much Minecraft. I said, oh, I don't. <laughs> but I do a podcast about it. I'm the everyman on this podcast. <laughs> I'm the relatable one. I mean, it's generally, it's generally your status quo, pretending to sound like an expert about things you have seldom experience with. Correct. Where are you, Zach? Uh, I'm, I've forgotten our... Uh, vocabulary lesson. I'm in the circular part. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, it, it was similar sounding to a certain car. It was a Chevy Forgeuary. <laughs> a Model T. <laughs> it's the Model T Uary. <laughs> Although it's a cathedral, so it's a model cross. You're waiting in the Chevy. I'm waiting in the Chevy with a, a lead pipe. All right, folks. Uh, I briefly mentioned when I started this new project that I wanted to handle things a bit differently in that when I build this new model for Notre Dame, I want to build it in the sequence of how the real thing was actually built. And that does involve building walls and buttresses and just general pieces of the cathedral that very well may no longer exist today. Wait, what do you mean pieces that no longer exist today? Do you mean because they burned down the fire? No, because they were demolished to renovate. For, to re hmm? So. So. Right now, we are standing in the Chevet, which is the semicircular wing of the cathedral on the east, right? Right. Because we are we are at the far end, at the opposite end, where the towers will one day be, right? Yes. The east end. The east end. Okay. So now if we walk around the outside here, or fly around if you have an Elytra, <laughs> um, you'll notice that there are these massive buttresses planted on the ground that stick way out uh, and that there is a semicircular wall that sort of wraps around on the sort of inside connection between each of those buttresses. What I want you to realize is that I've actually still left a ground plan for the final version of Notre Dame as it is today to compare to it. And you'll notice that the wall that's currently standing with the windows does not at all line up with the wall that is on the outside here. So, okay. So to reiterate now that I see what you're talking about, there's an inner wall here that's, you've done the elaborate work in building the stone out, but it doesn't match up with the floor plan underneath. Correct. The floor plan is further out than the pretty wall you made. Exactly. Yep. The floor plan for the current version today the outermost wall 
has nothing built up on it. The start of the cathedral when it was first built was much more inset. And that semicircular wall only hugs the two aisles of the ambulatory, the two different aisles that wrap around the apse at the east end. The reason that this is different than it was today is because much later in the architecture uh, construction of Notre Dame, they um, decided they wanted radiating chapels on the east end. So they converted this space between these massive buttresses into chapels. But when it was first built, there was nothing in between these massive buttresses. It was just empty space. And so right now, that's how it is. But that does mean that one day, further on construction, I'm going to have to come back and demolish all the work that I just did. Because you didn't make this project hard enough for yourself in the first place? No, no. I mean, this podcast has to at least last a couple of years. I had to make it long and, you know, make it impossible to finish within a few months, right? I'm just blinking. Well, that's the fun part, right? When it comes to demo day, we could have a special demo day on the podcast where I ask you to come out and knock down some walls on the cathedral for me. I think you can do that much. Careful, he'll bring some TNT with him. I kind of thought that might happen, yes. So this is very nice. It's just the stone and the andesite uh, that are temporary. Right, so the, I mean, so I'm using lots of different stones right now. Basic stone, andesite, stone bricks, um, even polished andesite. Um, right now, I'm I'm really just kind of relying on the basic template that I created with the single player map I had for the smaller version, the same texturing. Since this is a much larger version, I'm probably going to have to go back and think through some of the textures again, because what looks good on a certain scale probably doesn't look as good on another scale. But it's good enough to be sort of makeshift in the meantime. We weren't listening. Sorry, we're fighting. You're fighting? What are you fighting? Each other. Is PvP turned on? No. No. <laughs> We're just up on top of one of your uh, buttresses and we're just wailing at each other. Yeah, wet noodle matching each other. Are you trying to knock each other off? Okay. No, I mean, it doesn't work. I was trying, I I didn't know the PvP was disabled, so I snuck up behind David and I wanted to push him <laughs> off. And then when I clicked, it, like nothing happened. And I was like, ah, oh. well, that's why well, I've never actually tried PvP on the server. In the, I think it's it's been, it started in May, late May. Of last year, so Sounds it's been right. up for over a year, and I've never tried to hurt someone else. Almost anyway. That's how the calendar works. Almost a year, not... Yeah. I know how months work. <laughs> I blame the Romans. Who puts October as the 10th month? Seriously. Oh yeah, I never noticed that before. That is dumb, isn't it? It's because they put the stupid uh, Caesars in the middle. <laughs> huh. I never noticed that before. Actually, I hadn't thought about it either. Yeah. Whoever did that needs to be stabbed. Oh. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> the burning of the Library of Alexandria now jokes about that are too soon. <laughs> Stabbing Julius Caesar, that's not too soon. You make jokes about that the next day. Brutus certainly did. Et tu, Brute. And so, uh, so is literally anything... Oh, I'm almost dead. Uh, is literally anything here going to survive? Yeah. So the buttresses will remain. The giant thick slabs that are orthogonal to the curved surface of the chevet at this point, those are going to be where the flying buttresses ultimately reach out towards the apse much later. And so all that happens is, again, there's those cavities of space between each of the giant buttresses right now that eventually get filled in with more rooms, the chapels. And so they just extend the wall further back. 
And so all the windows have to get shoved backwards. Are they as, are the flying buttresses in their final form as plain and square as this? Well, so, okay, so remember, we're only at the first level right now. You know, right. this is just the beginning of the construction. Right. And I should also point out that we have not yet had our episode on the vocabulary for the verticality of Gothic architecture. We've only talked about vocabulary for the hor- the ground plan, the floor plan. But we haven't talked about what the different levels and the different tiers as you go up and down a cathedral actually are called. So that's coming up soon. Listeners, I hope you could tell how much he was smirking during that. He's way too excited. I'm excited too for podcast content. So anyway, uh, what we have here is the very first part that was built right around 1163. Which we said they built this part first because that's the most religious part of the, so like you could actually hold services and things. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the only reason, but that certainly is a reason that I've often heard justified where, yeah, if you can sort of focus on the high altar section where the choir is, then you can use that as a functional church while the rest, while the rest of the cathedral uh, continues under construction. Do you know if that was the case in Notre Dame? They were using it when it was maybe not this bare bones, but yes, slightly less bare bones than this? Yes, they were. Um, by, I forget what the year was, but by a certain, uh, a few decades in, once they had completed the choir, once they had, I think they had completed the transept too, uh, the sort of arms of the Christian cruciform, if you think again about that shape of the floor mm-hmm. plan, uh, then they would build a temporary wall, basically, where the rest of the cathedral would then get extended, that big part where the the uh, congregation usually sits, called the nave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since that part is huge and takes another several decades at least to build, they just, like I said, they build a temporary wall between the finished part and the new part, and then they can use it. However, like I said, Notre Dame has probably had more renovations than most other cathedrals. Uh, A lot of these walls get redone. A lot of the different tiers at different elevations get redone as well. And so it's going to really be an entire project from east to west that's always under constant renovation for quite a long time. Quite like roads nowadays. When you finish maintenance on a road. You just go back to the beginning. Do we? I had a question about that. Do we do the way we repave roads? Is that planned obsolescence? Is there a way we could be doing that in a way where it would last longer? At some point, I thought I was told that concrete would make roads not need to be replaced as frequently as asphalt. Well, I've I've heard mixed things too, and I'm not going to begin to pretend like I'm an expert on roads. But I do remember in a road construction video that I watched with my toddler son that they mentioned how asphalt is a recyclable material as opposed to concrete, which for some reason is not. Yeah. So that when they, you know, you've seen those um, scrapers when they build a new road on top of an old road that they, they sort of rip up layers of the top layers of the asphalt. And I, I, if I understand this correctly, they actually can then reuse that material to build a new road. I have no idea how that compares in terms of CO2 emissions, but, um, that's one reason maybe asphalt has some advantages. That's interesting. I mean, asphalt is a petroleum product, whereas concrete is not. However, a lot of CO2 through the chemical processes that result from making the cement that then turns into concrete produces a lot of CO2 emissions. So, yeah, I don't know how they compare. But, hmm. Concrete is also one of those materials that I think is like really fickle. Um, there's so many kinds of concrete. And I feel like you still hear about so many construction projects that 
completely fail because the concrete wasn't up to spec and they had to redo it. We actually had a big parking garage or bus terminal uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland, not far from where we live, that was this mammoth structure in the early 20-teens and has giant concrete columns. Right after they started using it, they had to test the concrete and it turned out it was completely unsafe. So they had to basically condemn the whole structure and then wait for another couple of years to somehow structurally reinforce it. I mean, my memory of that is when they did their calculations for the concrete, they forgot to calculate the weight of the buses that would be in the bus terminal. That would be a significant factor, yes. That might be apocryphal, but it's a good story. I mean, it's like that story of the architect who built a library who forgot to account for the weight of the books. Very well could come from that. And I mean, of course, concrete dates back to the ancient Romans, and they used that concrete in the Colosseum and the Pantheon. I didn't know that. One of the reasons that the Colosseum and the Pantheon are still standing today, or at least partially for the Colosseum, is that the concrete the Romans used was an exceptionally good quality of concrete. It was extremely, um, I don't know if dense is the right word, but it was very refined so that in the winter, uh, water would not get in the cracks between the concrete and freeze and then expand and crack the concrete. And so you have in these ancient structures that have lasted for so long because they survive winters. Whereas you can have lots of concrete in modern day that isn't built up to the spec of the ancient Romans that cracks all the time. The reason that the ancient Romans concrete was so good, I think, if I remember this fact correctly from my middle school Latin teacher, was because they use volcanic ash in the concrete formula. And there's lots of formulas of concrete. So I like that that's the fact that you remember from Latin class. I remember lots of facts from Latin class. Not the language, but lots of other facts. <laughs> Romanes eunt domus? People called Romanes, they go the house? It says Romans go home? No, it doesn't. So you you were showing us around the Chevy. Chevy? The Chevy. You said it right. You said it right. Chevy. Thank you. So you were showing us around the Chevy and all the temporary structures that are eventually going to be torn down. Yeah. But you were also showing us these piers that had capitals, uh, some crowns just placed on top of them that are going to be supporting structures for yet to be constructed arches. You've chosen to use diorite to represent what exactly? The capitals of the piers, the sort of flat tip tops, usually the part where you sort of see the the edges of the uh, the column that jet out. Did Notre Dame use diorite? As far as I know, it's pretty much all limestone from sort of the Parisian area. So no, I don't think it was explicitly diorite. So why did you choose diorite? when diorite wasn't in the original construction? Well, I was uh, trying to get some contrast in what I have learned recently in my more recent attempts at building things in Minecraft is that since you are limited in the detail with shape, since you're restricted to just blocks and a few figures contained within a block, you have to make up for that lack of detail with colors. And while the coloring between, say, the column and the capital might be the same color on the real thing, you need to kind of accentuate things more in a Minecraft build with some more contrast. So I, I forget what episode we were talking about, but it was talking about um, like a faithful representation of the structure that you're trying to, to build. And what, what does that what does faithful mean 
in the context of Minecraft, since you you're you're limited to very clunky blocks that are supposed to be one meter in length on a side, there's only so much actual like faithful geometry that you can use. But you want to be as realistic as possible uh, because you think that using realism is a way to invoke the feeling of the the building that you're reconstructing. You understand that there are limitations with the game engine to be able to to do that faithful representation. How do you make that cost, not cost benefit analysis, but how do you do that analysis between, I know this block isn't stone. I'm not using stone stairs, even though they exist in the game. Why, like, how do you, how do you choose not to use the right material material wise in order to use the right material aesthetic wise. It seems like one of the things that you're doing is uh, making unrealistic choices to enhance the realism. For instance, making it a two to one scale rather than a one to one scale. That is unrealistic from the perspective of us walking around as however tall you are in Minecraft two by one or something. Um, like it, it would look wrong comparatively, but it allows for something that to the brain can feel as more realistic. And so, uh, my guess in terms of your, your block choices is yes, it would be more technically correct to pick stone for everything, but that would look wrong and it would feel incorrect. I agree with that. Yes. So, but you're you're making a stylistic choice that's different than photorealism here, right? So, like, you're not doing like abstract art, but you are applying a non-realistic aesthetic to provide the audience member uh, an emotion that you want want them to feel. So, you're not strictly realism; you're strictly emotion. Yeah. I definitely am trying to evoke a feeling of the real thing by making choices that may diverge from the actual coloring, the actual materials, the actual substance. But again, it's all about, I think, getting the human eye to focus on certain details, almost like a hierarchy or a priority over other details. Certain things should stand out more and other things should be very subtle. And since you can't always accomplish that with shapes, since we're limited to blocks, you then resort to textures and colors. Since this was in the the email that I sent out, you guys have some prior knowledge to the leading question that I'm going to ask. The audience is going to be in the dark here, but where where do you draw the line between uh, a block that you would include for color texture purposes but it is not acceptable to use the what the block represents for example would you use a mushroom block for its color even though it's organic and correct me if i'm wrong your original notre dame your one-to-one from 10 years ago you didn't use wool right Nope, because that felt wrong. Correct. I Even though that color would have been more appropriate at some points. I arguably the gray color of the gray, light gray wool would have probably been a lighter shade and a bit closer to the tone than the darker stone color I used. That's true. So if I had built a giant wool cathedral in 2011, um, it might have looked more authentic. 
Although it probably would have killed me inside. <laughs> I think that's the question, right? When does it kill you inside and when is it acceptable? Wool. But it's wool. wool. <laughs> it's only wool. You'll use that's mushroom. I can't stand wool. Yeah. <laughs> Tom's vegan. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So there is one thing that's interesting that I don't know if you, for how many Minecrafters would actually notice this. This does not apply for all textures in game, but there are a few specific textures that this does. And they're mostly, I think, only textures that usually appear over and over again at a very, you know, sort of repetitive way, like stone and dirt and maybe sand. If you look at the stone block over and over again in a giant field or wall of stone, you'll notice one thing that the Minecraft engine does is that it takes the texture of the stone and it rotates it in arbitrary directions, depending on where you're looking. Huh. And what that accomplishes is that you get a non-uniformity ever so slightly of one block to the next, 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 to the next. And that helps break up the pattern so that it feels okay when you have a giant mountain of nothing but stone, a giant wall of nothing but stone. And again, there aren't that many textures in Minecraft that do that. Stone bricks, bricks, you know, almost most, you know, actual construction blocks that you have. They couldn't do that because a lot of those blocks are designed to interlock with a very specific orientation. But those very basic blocks like stone and dirt and maybe a few others do have that interesting arbitrary rotation to them. And um, wool, for example, would not do that. So if you had a wool block stacked next to each other over and over and over again, it doesn't matter how good the texture is, the human eye will always see that repetitive pattern over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't want to drag on wool too much. My house in our multiplayer server uses wool as the, the attic texture. And I think I get around that a little bit because it's not, you, you, were, you were describing a scenario where you have a large uh, section that's the same material. Uh, I think I get around that by breaking it up with wood and stone brick. And there's there are very few sections of wool that are longer than four blocks long. I don't think because wool has that effect that you describe, but because adding in other textures and colors into it is a better experience than just a what like a flat stone surface provides with its random orientations. And so I don't I don't think there's a controversial statement to make. You also like even though a large swath of stone looks okay, um you still break up your stone with stone bricks, crack stone bricks. Uh andesite is a good one in the next update which has been delayed. They're also coming out with some new ones that work well with stone as well. So look forward to that. But yeah, I, I think stone, I think wool works fine. You hate wool, but how about like mushroom? Okay, so back to your original question. I, there are a couple things that are a deal breaker for me. And since we are playing in a survival Minecraft map, these are a few things that are easy to answer. If a block is super destructible by fire or explosions, I generally won't use it just because it's too easily destroyed. 
And if you have an explosion go off, it'll take out many blocks in a row and I don't want to have to redo them. Stone uh, is resistant to explosions. So if you build with it, if a creeper goes off, then um, you haven't lost that much. So in that, I appreciate that. Also just braking uh, speed as well. Blocks break too easily. You know, people just walking around might click on things and accidentally break them. And I don't want that to happen. <laughs> oh, you're laughing like this has happened. Has it? I don't think this has ever happened. Has it? Maybe. I don't I don't think I've ever just accident like, oh, let's go into Dotty Dotty Da destroy some oh. blocks as I walk by. So I, I think the best answer I can give you, I am much better at being willing to use materials now in Minecraft that, you know, from the narrative perspective make no sense, like a mushroom, but only if they come in full form with slabs and stairs and their various iterations. Um, because I just do so much work with a lot of those special blocks now. Uh, if if they don't have a lot of those special block configurations, then the kind of work that I do would be a lot more limited. To clarify for people who don't know, what what, what you're saying is some types of blocks in Minecraft are they're the only form that you will ever see them in in terms of shape is just the normal Lego one by one cube that you associate with minecraft but now in minecraft um a lot of the textures have different versions that isn't just a cube such as a stair shape or a fence or uh, a wall which you play with to make shapes that are not just cube after cube after cube which your original notre dame was much more of cube after cube after cube and so if Mushroom doesn't give you those other options in shape, then it, it's limited in how useful it is for you. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's uncontroversial, but like that's, a, that's an interesting distinction. I, I'm struggling to think of the examples in your building where you use something, where you use a block type that doesn't have like a stair or a half slab. So some of the biggest professionals, and I don't consider myself to the caliber of some of the most impressive Minecrafters out there. I feel I'm very good, but I'm certainly not at the very top tier. And some people, an example, a very uh, popular YouTuber for Minecraft, Grian, does an excellent job on his channel about talking about pallets of stones where you sort of assemble uh, an assortment of certain colors of stone that you say, I'm going to build a new building out of this sort of spectrum of colors and they can be from very arbitrary things like you talked about zach like one might be sandstone and one might be a mushroom right but this certain palette of colors you get from these stones just work really nicely together and then they build something out of that and a lot of these other people that are building stuff tend to use just plain blocks more for more walls and things and I am right now just not as experienced with some of those palettes. I really only work with, for most of my buildings currently, with I'd say three major palettes. The first palette is the stone palette that Notre Dame is being built out of right now. And that's probably the easiest palette to build with just because they're so common, they're so easy to get. And there's a lot of blocks to work with that all have that sort of similar gray tint that all work well together. Stone, stone brick, andesite, and so forth. Um, the second palette is sandstone. I've done some stuff with sandstone before, a sort of tan color, a very brown color. There's quite a few stones that sort of fit that palette as well. And yeah, maybe a mushroom <laughs> would work well with that based on its color. <laughs> uh, and then the third palette is the super rare palette, the uh, quartz palette, which is really uh, 
marble mine uh, marble in Minecraft. They don't call it marble, but it's marble. The very white surfaces that would be uh, expected in like a Roman or a Greek construction with all of the very marbly columns and uh, classical architecture. So I built a lot with, you know, blocks that fit that description too. But there's so much more that you can do uh, with all sorts of other palettes and I just need to be more brave and explore stuff. Or rather the existing world of architecture needs to be more brave with that so you can copy it. Alrighty, I'm going to log out because uh, nighttime's going to fall and kill everyone. Don't forget your bed. Yeah, I need that. I gave you the Elytra. Yes, yes, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. For the record, I, I'm pretty sure the reason that that previous Elytra you had didn't last is because you gave it a foul name. So I, I caution you to think about renaming this next one more carefully. Uh, yeah, I think I just called it Flying. Perfect. What'd you call the last one? Tom's butt. This podcast is, of course, not going to go out for at least a few more weeks until the public actually hears it. But just so the public is aware, today is a notable day. Today is, for us, the um, podcast recorders, today is the anniversary, the second anniversary of the fire at Notre Dame. Today is April 15th, 2021. The French Embassy today hosted a live panel event uh, with several experts on Gothic architecture and the reconstruction and people associated with Notre Dame. It was really nice of them to invite Tom to speak on their panel. I know, right? I, I, I just hogged the mic the whole time and I, I got only a few dirty glances. I got to actually ask a question as a direct follow-up from our previous episode, which I am eager to share. And uh, did you on a mic or just like on a text uh, chat box? No, it was just a chat box. Um, it was, it was, they, it was fast and furious and, uh, I, I typed like three or four questions and the moderator texted me back and said, dang, son, you got some great questions. Uh, I think we can only use one of these. So then they asked me to pick one. I picked one and then they used the other. But that's okay. I'm happy with the one that they picked. Please tell me they use the phrase dang, son. The French. Zoot. If you recall from last time, we were talking about Chartres Cathedral. And we talked about its recent restoration where they did an extensive cleaning of the interior, cleaning off all the soot from decades of use. And it used to be a very black cathedral on the inside, but now it's a very white cathedral. It's effectively whitewashed and even painted white. And it's very jarring for, as we talked about last time, for people who are used to the way it used to be. But the, the question becomes is, is this the same kind of treatment that we could expect Notre Dame of Paris to have applied to it as well now that it's undergoing a major restoration as well? And so that was effectively my question that I asked the panel today at the French embassy, virtually. The answer I got was really interesting. So first of all, on the panel, um, there was a Dr. Stephen Murray, who's actually been on a Nova special on building the great cathedrals. And he had some fascinating answers and the answer that he gave me, first of all, was just a little bit of background on why did they do that to Chartres Cathedral in the first place? I guess back in the Middle Ages, that very whitewashed experience that we were talking about last time is authentic to how those cathedrals would have appeared to a middle-aged person, you know, 800, 900 years ago. So they were trying to replicate the real experience. And some of the bizarre things that they would do would be like painting that faux marble we talked about. And even this was the weird thing. They would paint a lot of faux joints between stones. 
they would then cover up the real joints with paint, which is just so bizarre. It's like, why would you cover up the real joints and use fake joints? It blows my mind. I think you can understand why. I think this clearly speaks to the thing that we're talking about previously of how what looked architecturally interesting, fancy even, uh, 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 back in that day is just a completely different taste than what we have today. Paint was harder to come by back then. So like you didn't see it in as much, uh, you'd only, it would only be in the major buildings. I think that's an accurate thing to say. Like, it's not like, yeah, no Sherwin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't think paint was really hard, but then I was like, you're only comparing it to how easy it is to find today. And like, (laughs) it's pretty easy to find today. Right. Uh, like it's not not every house was painted like you, it would just be the materials so like the painted things would be pa- the the palaces the cathedrals so that's where you'd go to see that sort of color but as over time that has faded or even scraped off or scraped off and over time we get used to the dirty look and associate that with antiquity even though there's nothing old about that it old doesn't mean dirt necessarily they're not synonymous I mean, dirt is pretty old. I don't have a reply to that. Yeah, I know. Come back for that. <laughs> I, have you have you not heard "old as dirt"? I mean, yeah, it was it was it was a truthful statement. So I had nothing I could say. Maybe maybe you should start associating dirt with old. Well, so that's the thing. You can associate them, but they're not synonymous. Well, so as we dove deeper into Notre Dame's restoration versus Chartres' restoration. We, again, we were talking about, or I, I, I wasn't getting to partake in this conversation. I was just listening, <laughs> but <laughs> I wish I was, the, I was, you know, I wanted to be on that panel so bad. Um, you just need a couple more PhDs. <clears throat> um, I then asked, is Notre Dame going to be painted over just like it was at Chartres? You know, they were very brazen. They were trying to replicate that medieval experience at Chartres. So will that be at Notre Dame as well? So the answer I got from, uh, Uh, But this is actually the president of Friends of Notre Dame, who is running the fundraising efforts at the international scale to help support all this work. And his name is, I believe, Michel Picot. He was sort of in on the know of how the restoration work was proceeding. And he said, we probably could expect them to touch up some of the paint that's already there, because actually a lot of those radiating chapels are painted some vibrant colors, especially around the Chevet. Uh, if you look at some of those radiating chapels, they have some very deep blues and things. So all that'll probably get touched up with a lot of new paint. But his initial expectation was probably not nearly to the level that was done at Chartres uh, in the main nave, the main vessel of the whole cathedral. But it sounded generally that they weren't even really at that stage yet to finally consider what their final plans are. So I think it's an ongoing conversation. Then here was the interesting part. Another member of the panel was the organist who had already done a really fascinating description of the organ and the restoration going on just for that, because that's an extremely sensitive um, and mammoth project all on its own. Uh, I believe his name is pronounced Olivier Latry, I think. Again, apologies if I got that wrong. But as soon as this question came up, he piped up right away and said, Ha, piped. Go on. He piped up. Oh, my train of thought. He piped up and he said that it would be a disaster if they gave the painting treatment, the whitewashing painting treatment to Notre Dame that they did at Chartres. And he said it would ruin the acoustics of Notre Dame. 
Oh. And I thought, that's so fascinating. He said that... Because paint absorbs? Right now, the organ at Notre Dame is an incredibly sensitive instrument that I guess they've done all sorts of tweaks and fine-tunings to, that it is designed to behave as it is intended to in that stone cavernous space. And if they were to paint over everything like they did at Chartres, I guess they would have to completely rethink the acoustics of the building and that is something that they clearly do not want to do. I have like, oh, I have so many questions to go off of this. Okay, so first off, is that because the paint absorbs differently than plain stone? Yes. Okay. It's more absorbent, right? Yes. He started giving numbers like you can expect a certain number of seconds of reverb against a stone surface versus a certain amount of reverb against a painted surface. And maybe in, you know, a smaller room, paint versus stone isn't going to matter that much. But when you have a gigantic Gothic cathedral, that gets amplified several times over, even with slight changes in the consistency of the material. I'm not sure there is a physical science that is more baffling to me than acoustics. Yeah. It feels impossible for them to account for the variables that all would have to go into that. Clearly they do. Acousticians. I think that's how you say that. Sounds good. I'll take it. Zach is not approving of... (laughs) Prove me wrong. Sound engineers. Acousticians, I'm pretty sure is a word. Sure, whatever. (laughs) So many of like material sciences, if you're doing something that is calculation-based, that is fairly understandable, like how you could do the complex math to figure that out. Maybe now with the the advent of of high-end computing, you could account for all the variables of all of the angles in a room and the materials uh, all throughout a room. I, I imagine, I guess, our computers are probably strong enough to handle that. But there's just so many variables in, in that that I, I just can't even, I don't even know how to, someone like that begins to think through, sure, acoustics in a small little room. Okay, sure, you could figure that out. But like in a in a theater or in a cathedral, what I, it's, it blows my mind i i'm not gonna undercut the work that they do i'm sure it is computationally intensive but i don't want you to believe that all complex engineering tasks require those complex calculations to occur for you to be successful meaning that you can get close enough and that is good enough i mean your ear and your brain are very sensitive instruments and calculation tools, right? Mm, That's true. So like, uh, imagine this. If I asked Tom to account for wind resistance uh, and human biology, write down the equations necessary to figure out how to throw a baseball from the pitcher's mound to home plate, right? That's computationally intensive. Probably a really difficult task for a mathematician or a physicist. Not a very difficult task for a pitcher. <laughs> they don't get the signs from the the catcher about what kind of pitch that they should do. Turn around, like open up their desk, get some like their TI-83, punch in everything. It's like, all right, now I know how to throw this ball. They know how to do it. <laughs> I like that you implied that you could that these poor pitchers can't afford nicer calculators than TI-83s. TI-83s have not changed in price for about 95 years. Do not disparage the TI-83. I was using it as the gold standard of calculator. (laughs) And you just went ahead and dumped all over it. Texas Instruments. Are you a Casio man? No, I buy all their products. 
and they charge an arm and a leg for them. Yes, I'm a math teacher. Yeah, well. I, I'm angry that we're still stuck with basically the same technology of 30 years ago. The screens just have a few more pixels now. Don't don't tell your students about Wolfram Alpha. Well, okay, that's a really big We're tangent. not going down that <laughs> But say, no, your, no, no. your point on sound engineers. <laughs> yeah, your point on sound engineers. My, my point on sound engineers is I'm sure there is a lot of theoretical work that's involved. I don't want to disparage that. But don't put all of the weight of their task onto just computation. I'm sure there is a lot of heavy lifting just sitting there and listening. Well, I appreciate you uh, talking me down from that because... When I brought this up, there was pretty much two ways in my head that I could take this path. And one was to provide extreme awe for their craft. And the other was to claim that it's all a lie. And I chose to go with the first. It's good that you figure out how to pull it into the middle. It is awe-inspiring. I don't think I was trying to pull you down from that. Because uh, one of the things that I I did in my multivariate class was talk about how all, all these different large structures in medieval times often would have a composition made specifically for them uh, and it would be interesting to hear exactly what the the composition for notre dame uh sounds like because i don't know what it is personally well to the point that zach was making a moment ago about you know it's easier for a pitcher than a physicist to solve that problem again the scientific method really hadn't been invented yet in the Middle Ages, certainly not to the standard form that we use from Isaac Newton and on. I mean, when they were building Gothic cathedrals, uh, there was a lot of trial and error, right? There was a lot of, let's see if this works. And they would, you know, build it up and then they see if it holds or not. And not all cathedrals made it. A lot of cathedrals actually kind of needed to be rebuilt because they collapsed. You know, there was lots of examples of that. Um, Beauvais in particular is an unfinished cathedral to this day, uh, actually built a bit after Notre Dame was more, um, ambitious in terms of height, too ambitious, it turned out and collapsed. But I imagine again, the same thing with the acoustics too. There's probably a lot of trial and error. I imagine that, you know, you do have to kind of see how this sounds, you know, try out some material, uh, in different spots around the nave. Actually, if you are in uh, Washington, D.C. and you go to the National Cathedral, uh, some of the surfaces around, I think, the vaulting and some of the transept and maybe nave actually have something called, I believe it's acousolith, acousolith, something to that effect. Oh, really? You won't give him weird glares over that word, Zach? Uh, because he's just speaking gibberish to me right now. You were at least tangential to an actual word. Oh, okay, okay. Again, the National Cathedral, they also were trying to optimize acoustics in certain ways, and so they used this special tile that is supposed to absorb and, I suppose, redirect the sound in better ways than, I guess, what the stone itself would have done. My bigger question is, considering that they did this intensive whitewashing job at Chartres, did they ruin the acoustics of Chartres? You do wonder, uh, uh, for someone who knows their instruments so well, like you'd understand that they would be wanting to preserve what they know and, and return to what uh, what it was. I would be very curious to know if, if that organist has gone to Chartres and, and listened to a, an organ concert with the, the new paint job and can tell an, a, a clear difference. I, very possible that you can. I, I just wouldn't know. 
Oh, so what's the difference between someone who's spent their like career and blood, sweat, and tears to make sure that the acoustics are correct and an average parishioner? Like, would an average parishioner be able to tell the difference? I, I think, you know, it might not necessarily be something that an average parishioner might think about, but I could still expect subconsciously somebody can tell when, you know, it's hard to hear something. No, it's a good point, Zach. Uh, I think such is true in so many types of art, though. The people who really study something have a uh, deeper level of appreciation that should be respected and listened to. And balanced, maybe is the right way of putting it, with average Jane Schmo who doesn't have that same level of attachment and so doesn't have as nuanced of opinions. So you have to cater to them both to some degree. I think just hearing the argument that since the space is so large, even a small change in the reverb has a large impact on the sound, to court the pun, it resonates with me. <laughs> That if you were to play something pre-paint job to someone and play the post-paint job to someone, that they would be able to tell the difference between the two uh, when when they're contrasted so close together with one another. An interesting question to me is if you don't do that immediate contrast, is someone going to be able to tell that there is something wrong with it? Not not that they aren't able to tell the difference, but do they notice the difference? So if can I return to the panel, but related to uh, them answering your question, I don't think we've talked about this. Who gets to decide if they're doing that or not? They're doing uh, that sort of restoration or, or not? And were any of them on that panel? That's a good question. I don't think any of them are at the level where those decisions are finally getting made. Uh, so there's there's two gentlemen who are sort of right at the top of the whole project. There is the cathedral architect, and then there is the sort of general, I think, who is managing all of the work. And I-, I Like literally a military general? He's a former general, I believe. I don't have their names in front of me, I'm sorry. I think there's definitely between them, as well as probably a lot of, frankly, government approval that needs to still kind of go through on some decisions- um, but yeah, I have no idea on like who's actually making the final call on these decisions. I imagine the universe of cathedral architecture experts in the world is quite small. Like there are many enthusiasts, right? you being among them, um, but you're not qualified to give them construction advice. No, I suppose not. You have opinions and you probably feel like you're qualified for it. You have no idea how much I wanted to talk at that panel today. <laughs> But um, my question here is how much are they refer are they relying on just French expertise versus more worldwide expertise? I have a really uplifting answer for you and that the French have really embraced, I think, a very international approach to this whole project. And they have mentioned multiple times how thankful they are to highly enthusiastic Americans in particular of not only in terms of their contributions financially, but of just a lot of the invaluable work that has come from the research that we've done on Notre Dame and Gothic architecture. There is a gentleman whose name uh, was Andrew Tallon, I believe, who unfortunately passed away only a few years ago. But he did an extensive laser scan of the entirety of Notre Dame. Is that what prompted our that prompted the floor plan in the first episode? Exactly. 
from his data as well as some as well as some other people who have also done laser scans through that work that's how they created that much more accurate floor plan and other 3d models that show us all of those asymmetries and the warpedness of the structure you know all of those weird uh quirks of notre dame and again these are americans who had all this research already done just out of the love of the building, not thinking it would be needed because of a massive fire and the reconstruction that would happen afterwards. But now that we have this volume of work, it's been shared with the French and the French have been using it. Uh, And so it's been a very um, collaborative process from all the stories I read online. And I find that very uplifting. I I think that's a nice uh, way of uh, thinking about it, that it's the world coming together. Uh, Not to put a damper on that, but I'm curious how much of that is by necessity, though, that uh, if they relied on just French expertise, is there enough? Does any one country have enough expertise on cathedral architecture? Or at this point, you pretty much have to pull from all corners of that world to get the knowledge you need. That I don't know. I, I, I do not know the state of how many experts there are in France of Gothic architecture. I would think they probably have enough considering just how much of it they have to maintain over there. That's a good point. Yeah. But um, it sounds like, you know, without this work from Andrew Tallon, it would have been a real hurdle to figure out some of the steps in the reconstruction process. So... One last point about the panel that I learned today was, you know, where are they in raising funds for Notre Dame and reconstruction? As they sort of finished up with what they call the safety phase, that is the phase where they make sure that Notre Dame doesn't fall over uh, because it was very jeopardized after that fire and all that scaffolding was melted on top of it, uh, vaulting collapsed. Um, It was in real danger of toppling over ever further. We have now exited that phase because, again, they've got all these wooden braces and these wooden braces are, I think, as as I understand it, have really stabilized the building to a point where I don't think we're afraid of any more collapsing, which is good news. Uh, but that cost, I guess, about 165 million euros or about 200 million dollars. And I, as far as I know, that money has been pretty much raised. But we're now, you know, entering the next phase of restoration and reconstruction. And they don't have a exact number yet of how much they expect that to cost, but only to expect that cost to balloon. And even with um, the donations from many of the extremely large uh, contributions from billionaires and then all the other money that's been raised so far, they are still expecting to need to raise quite a bit more money to fund this project. And I will refer back to what we talked about. I think it was our second podcast how there's just something about restorations that's just way more expensive than building something from scratch. And so all the more reason why I am very proud that we've created this podcast to continue to support those efforts for the foreseeable future, because they are going to need it. And that's why we're asking all of you to contribute only the low price of $50 an episode we put out to Notre Dame. Every single one of you, we can do it. Yeah, he's going to cut that. He doesn't like my jokes about money. It's like David just wants me to cut things. One other small interesting point. They are also trying to build an endowment fund to regularly uh, fund the cathedral for future projects and future regular work that will need to be done over and over and over again. Because a cathedral is an ongoing process. I don't think a lot of people are aware of this. 
But Notre Dame was in really bad shape before the fire. Notre Dame was actually had quite a bit of structural damage before the fire happened. A lot of the buttresses were decaying. A lot of stones had collapsed. A lot of parts were really just falling to pieces. Friends of Notre Dame, the international organization that's been raising this money, had already been in operation, I think, for at least a couple of years before the fire had ever occurred. And they were trying to raise money for a lot of these things that badly needed attention. But it was a real uphill struggle before the fire raising the necessary funds. Then the fire happened, and then suddenly everybody was aware of Notre Dame. And it was sort of a, uh, you know, double-edged sort of, we have a lot more money because we just burned down a lot of the cathedral. Uh, but the hope is with the endowment fund that they want to then also raise funds for, that they will never find themselves in the same position again. That even after the restoration, they will have more of a reserve so that they can continue to fund the cathedral and its ever needed upkeep maintenance. When you said once they finish this project, they will start to build, my brain started feeling, wait, are they planning on building a second cathedral? <laughs> Um, then you said endowment, which was less exciting, but still important. I mean, they were going to build a backup Notre Dame just in the... Uh, yeah, just in case. <laughs> just in case. I was trying to think of if they were going to dock something down to make room for a second <laughs> Notre Dame, where would they do that? What would they knock down? I mean, obviously, the Bastille has some cultural uh, significance to it with the, you know, the French Revolution. Uh, some. So probably not that. Um I don't know. I don't know what they'd knock down in Paris to build another one. <laughs> Zach, are you muted? Wait, wait, wait. We don't hear Zach. I'm muted. God damn it. How did you mute yourself? I have a little mute thing that I <laughs> over and over again. How long have you been trying to say things? We haven't heard long. you. I've been watching him. No, not that long. I, I just, yeah, I just figured that they would build the second cathedral like underneath the first one. And so just like. When you're done with the top one, you just sort of move it out of the way and lift it up. And then you have that cavity under there. You build a third one. And when you're done with the second one, you just lift it up. That's a very Minecraft approach. Hydraulics. Yeah, hydraulics. There's no hydraulics in vanilla Minecraft. No. That you know of. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.